Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Amnesty International Canada. Amnesty International has been a leading voice for the protection of human rights for over 60 years. Right now, Amnesty is leading a global call for investigation of war crimes in Syria. And the deadly chemical attacks this month have been yet another example of the clear need to hold those responsible to account. You can add your voice in the call for justice and accountability in Syria at amnesty.ca slash CanadaLand. News about news layoffs is old news, and it's easy to tune it out. Take the National Post. It's been on Death Watch since it launched. Same thing with its parent chain, Post Media, the largest newspaper chain in Canada. It seems like every month there's word of another round of journalists getting the axe, and it's terrible, and people feel bad about it, but the world keeps turning, the news keeps coming. Until it doesn't. Post Media is going down. That's what the National Post's founder, Conrad Black, thinks. He tweeted, It's too late. The bondholders control the company and are content to bleed it dry with the complicity of management. Bankruptcy is next. That made me think, huh? Those big bonuses that the Post Media executives got. Everyone made fun of them that they're getting bonuses for failing. What if they're getting bonuses for doing exactly what they're supposed to do? 
provide steady management as it's picked dry by its American debt holders. And when there's nothing left to sell, no one left to lay off, no assets left to unload, that's it. It's not going to be layoffs or buyouts on that day. It's the end of the line, end of the job for like 4,000 people. People like Andrew Coyne, Christy Blatchford, Colby Kosh, Chris Selly, Terry Glavin, John Iveson, gigs for Rex Murphy, Barbara Kay, Bob Fulford, Lord Black of Cross Harbor himself will be out of a steady freelance contract. Others who you hear about or from all the time on this show, Sean Craig, Ashley Chinatti, Jen Gerson, Adrian Humphreys, Tristan Hopper. And then there are the regional voices, Paula Simons in Edmonton, Bill Brownstein in Montreal, David Reevely of The Citizen, The Sun newspaper chain, No More Joe Warmington. I am having a little bit of fun with some of these names, but this is not good news. This is like more than 4,000 people. Not all of them are reporters or columnists, but all of them are in the business of words. They are in the business of opinion, of ideas, of telling you what's happening in the world. And it is very likely maybe even probable that one day in the next 12 months, they will all be out of work. What happens on that day? Some of those people will find a soft landing. They'll have no trouble finding somebody else. But it's a musical chairs game. The industry is getting much smaller at a very accelerated pace, and there will not be room left for everybody. Some of those people are going to leave the industry. We are ultimately going to be much, much poorer for the end of post-media. We are now seeing name brand journalists losing their platforms. Katie O'Malley, I think she might be the most well-known correspondent in Ottawa covering federal politics, and Post Media laid her off. Doesn't seem like she has missed a beat. She is going to talk to me about what that was like in a minute, and then we're going to hear from another former Post Media journalist, Stephen Marr. He left the company as well. Both have found that there is life after Post Media, and he'll join me after Katie. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Andrew Lewin, Matthew Douglas, Lexa Doig, Ian Forrest, Andrew Gibson, Ricardo Amorum, Subdeep Sidhu, and John Hampton. John, why did you decide to be awesome? Because I listen every week and I like to support the media that I enjoy. And you've uh, hired great people to report on things from actually within their community. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, 
there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is also brought to you by Second City Improv Classes. Guys, improv-based training is enriching people's lives from theaters to the boardrooms of Fortune 500 companies. Academics and influencers, ranging from Malcolm Gladwell to Oxford University to the founder of Twitter, have been extolling the life-changing benefits. Okay, I did improv when I was younger, when I was a kid, and I loved it. It's so much fun. It teaches you a different way to listen and interact with people. It's an amazingly social activity. It helps both your personal and professional life, makes you a better listener, communicator, and contributor in all of your relationships. Of course, Second City are the people when it comes to improv, the largest school of improv and sketch comedy in the world. Their alumni include John Candy, Gilda Radner, Tina Fey, Stephen Colbert. You can do this in a very supportive and safe atmosphere. You can get out of your shell. You can have a lot of fun. Second City has social classes, professional classes, youth and teen. Coming soon, Rewire You, a business-focused professional development program. So visit secondcity.com slash CanadaLand. You will learn about early bird discounts, and you can claim one free drop-in class. Why not just go try it? Again, that's secondcity.com slash CanadaLand. Okay, so thanks very much. Like, I guess we'll just sort of figure this out as we're doing it. We just wanted to explore, sure. we want to kind of explore some of the things that pe- people are feeling like on a personal, professional level as these changes continue to, you know, rain down upon us. Mm-hmm. And I think like we're so inured to news of news layoffs that the final reckoning, you know, like it feels like, especially with post media, it's been on death watch so many times and And for so long. Yeah. Yeah. And then you think that, you know, if Conrad Black is right about what he tweeted and it looks like that is the strategy of they're just, they're just, you know, trying to juice whatever value they can get out of it for the bondholders. And then you think like there will come a day when it's not sort of to the general public, you know, okay, there were 50 people lost their jobs. Most of them you don't know, but like, well, Andrew Coyne and Colby Kosh and Paula Simons and John Iveson and Terry Glavin and and then Ashley Chinati and Jen Gerson and Sean Craig and people who my listeners are really familiar with, like right. are they, they're all probably going to get a pink slip. Well, I mean, we obviously hope that in some way things will turn around and that even if, you know, the National Post or the various papers, even if that empire collapses, that the papers themselves may have a a life after that. Perhaps they can be sold off to someone who perhaps wants to put a little more time and money into running a media empire than we've seen thus far, although it's not really a great investment right now, I guess. But yeah, there's, I think that, you know, existentially people in general always figure, oh, the day might come where I lose my job, my company might go under, et cetera, et cetera. It definitely seems to feel more 
more real and more immediate and more like rather than sort of a possibility, almost a virtual certainty. The question is when, when you're working in, in this industry, and that's true at Post Media. It was, you know, it's it's true at other outlets as well. I mean, we just saw today the announcement about the uh, the purchase of basically all of the transcontinental media properties in Atlantic Canada are being bought by the the company that owns the Chronicle Herald. So, I mean, again, they don't say there's going to be job losses, but that's a major transition. The industry is just in such flux. So, yeah, it's a, it's a tough one. I have to think for people, obviously, for those of us who know people at the Post, we always think of the, the actual human beings because they're our friends. And that you're, you're right that that's probably true for people who read them. But there also may be a day where they go to their, new, their, uh, their front door to get their National Post, and it's not there. There's just nothing. Yeah, I, I, I've spoken to journalists who are kind of they've, – they've seen it all and they take a zen approach to say, you know what, stuff happens, newspapers change hands, people get laid off, people come, people go, everybody lands on their feet and the shuffling of the cards can be rough but there will be a tomorrow and I guess this feels different. I'm wondering, you know, and there's a couple of reasons why. One of it is that from a business perspective, the time for post media to kind of cleave off the viable local papers and sell them may have passed and and their business strategy seems to be to just extract whatever they can while revenue is coming in. And it just doesn't seem like that's actually what they're trying to do. But beyond that, just the idea of collapse and the idea of, I mean, I don't want to be glib. It's kind of funny when you think about some of these people who make a lot of money and are, are close to retirement. Anyhow, like, you know, Christy Blatchford Willow Pine for change, that's not going to happen. And I, I, I'm not so worried about Andrew Coyne's lot. I'm sure he'll figure something out. But there are- Oh, he'll scramble through somehow, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. You know, tough times, but started from the bottom. Now he's here. But there, there, are, there are a ton of people, and beyond just the people, there's like just a ton of- public service. There's a ton of institutional knowledge. There's a ton of beat reporting where people have put decades into accumulating expertise and contacts. And if all at once, really hundreds of those people are let loose into the market, I'm curious what that's going to mean for Canadian newsreaders. And then, you know, but I also just want to talk about what it means for those journalists. Like Mm -hmm. if you had to give advice, if that, let's assume that that day happened today and everyone got their pink slip, what would you say to all of those really established professional journalists? Well, yeah, I mean, probably, first of all, really don't panic. Just take a breath, take a moment, realize, I think for me personally, one of the toughest things for me to really, really, I mean, I knew it intellectually, but to really process and to really accept was when you get a pink slip, it is not a reflection on your skill or your character or on anything other than the fact that, well, in my case, it was a union shop. So my number literally came up. There was an act. It was going to cut at a certain line and I was below that line. I think, uh, you know, it's different situations, whether or not, you know, depending on the structure within a paper, but ultimately layoffs are never going to be about you know, you didn't do a bad thing. You are not being punished. This is this is something that you've got to kind of uh, accept. And it's, it's really hard, particularly if you've never been in a situation before where you've been unexpectedly terminated. It, it's, it's rough. And that's kind of the first thing you have to get over. And then beyond that, yeah, I mean, just look around out there. There are other options. The industry is in flux, but that doesn't mean there still aren't people. I mean, my goodness, the National Post is hiring. So, I mean... <laughs> There's always, as it turns out, even in times when it seems like everyone is sort of shedding skin and shedding layers, there are jobs out there. So I don't know. Uh, I'm still working through this myself, so I'm probably not the best person to uh, to, to to give advice. But it, I mean, in general, you know, if you if you still want to do journalism, there should be a way to do that. So probably don't give give up right away. 
I think you're the best person to talk to about it. I mean, it's such an interesting case. You have both in terms of like the esteem that people have for the work you do, the public following at 100,000 Twitter followers. It was sort of like when you switched from the CBC to Post Media, that was a job shift of, of public interest when people saw that that was happening. And Post Media said, oh, well, this is a wonderful thing for our, our new digital push. Most of her work will happen on our digital mobile app, but she'll still tweet now and then. And this was taken as like a, a progressive move into embracing digital online journalism. And you couldn't imagine somebody beyond yourself who was more well positioned to like, this person is, is forward facing as a journalist. I, I think that completely confirms that there's nothing personal with all of that kind of hype uh, and institutional support that you got. And then, you know, it, it's not like that waned. It seems like people's interest in the work that you do is as high as ever. And since leaving Post Media, that hasn't skipped a beat, but... Like, how has it been for you? Like, what's changed for for the public seems to be like, Katie's still reporting uh, as thoroughly as she ever was, but you're not receiving steady pay. No, it's true. Although we don't have to, we don't have to start a, a GoFundMe for me just yet. I'm managing to sort of cobble together enough work that I'm, uh, I am currently in a, actually, I'm in kind of an ideal situation in that sense. I mean, yeah, it's precarious in the, you know, new traditional sense, which means that it is not for certain. I do not have sort of, you know, long-term contracts. I don't have the next 20 years of my life assured I'm not going to be getting a gold watch at some point, most likely. You know, I mean, I've got stable employment with iPolitics in the sense that I've been working a regular sort of six-hour-a-day schedule there. Um, and then I'm sort of putting as much freelance work as I can as I can kind of muster up on top of that. So to be totally honest, I kind of like it because it gives me more control over my time and I'm able to sort of work on my own schedule and how I like to approach things, which is, of course, always dominated by actual news events and what's going on. I'm not completely a master of time and space, but in some ways I, I'm really settling in well and I really enjoy what I'm doing now. It almost feels more natural and more organic than towards the end of the time that I was at Post Media, which is not meant as a slur at the Ottawa Citizen, which was, which was wonderful. I had a great boss, I had great colleagues, but there were some structural weirdnesses there that meant that I'm not sure I was always able to really always do the best job that I can do. Let's put it that way. I'm trying to be diplomatic. I yeah. think that there were, you know, I mean, in some ways, and, and again, not this was not the fault of the citizen. Also, I hope not my fault, but just the way sort of beats and jurisdictions broke down, I wasn't always able to cover the political stories that I necessarily wanted to cover the way I wanted to cover them all the time, which of course is true for anyone. So, you know, cry me a river. But, um, but in, gen in, in that sense, I'm really excited to be doing what I'm doing now because it feels a lot more nimble and a lot more flexible. Your timing seemed actually pretty good because for lack of a better, like for a name brand journalist to kind of hit the market when there is a smattering of smaller shops, you're doing stuff with Vice and iPolitics. It's just like, oh, we can, we can get her now. And, and then, you know, you may even be in a really good bargaining position. In a few months' time, when a lot of name brand journalists hit that same market and the market itself, there's no denying that the public is interested in hearing from a lot of these people. But if the number of news organizations that have budgets to pay those people, suddenly it's a buyer's market and then the lot of those organizations themselves is uncertain, you could kind of imagine there being sort of like a journalist glut. And, and then, then you wonder what's next. Is, is it entrepreneurship? What happens then? Yeah, I think I think that that's a that's a very sound. Well, I hope it's not a sound prediction, but I fear it is in the sense that yeah, if there's going to be speaking specifically about post media, it, it does seem. I mean, obviously the layoffs and the terminations we've seen have been 
in largest numbers, but they haven't been like, it's not like every single person who's been laid off for post media happened on the same day. It's been sort of over a couple of months, but it's entirely possible that in six months you might see a lot more people who are in this situation. And yeah, that that could be really exciting. You could have different, uh, maybe, maybe you know, groups that will get together and, and, and put on their own venture. I mean, you can do a lot of stuff online, the trouble. And here's where you get into, you know, tiny or, or massive. All news outlets are facing the same obvious question, which is how the heck do we make money off this internet thing? And that is the same sort of brain teaser, whether or not you're three people sitting in a room with a website versus an, an organization that employs or currently employs hundreds of journalists. No one has managed to crack that code yet. And that's going to be the, the challenge for whatever comes next, be it you know large or small. Are we overthinking this equation? I mean, it's so circuitous for you to go to James Baxter at iPolitics and see what he can afford, and then he is trying to make his business work through subscription. You've got 100,000 followers on Twitter. I can't think of anybody who's doing more of like a pure case of like public service journalism. You go to the Hill and you tell people what's happening. You do ask me anything where people can ask you anything and you decode politics for the public. And there's a hundred thousand people who clicked a button. That basically means I care what Katie has to say and I want her to inform me. You could just turn on a Patreon tomorrow and probably make <laughs> a lot. Like, couldn't you? Like the, the thought must've crossed your mind. You could probably make a lot more money than you're making through iPolitics and Vice. Um, I have I have thought about that. To be totally honest, I actually like having some adult supervision, to quote, you know, a, a conservative leadership candidate. I like having an editor. I like having a structure where I can write and I can report. Now, this doesn't mean that that won't change. I mean, who knows? Maybe six months from now, I'll be on this show and explaining to you all how you can support me on, on, on Patreon. But at the... I do I do like having some people helping me steer my own ship. I like to write. I like to report. I would rather, if possible, not have to worry about a whole lot of other administrative issues while I'm doing it, which doesn't mean I'm a prima donna. Like I can, you know, put my own package, my own post in WordPress and put in my meta tags and add my photos and stuff. So I'm not one of those people that just like sends in, you know, a bunch of text that expects other people to make the magic happen. But I do like having an editor. I do like having someone to bounce ideas off of. I do like that sort of process. So I think th- this is what I mean. For me personally, this is actually a really good blend because I both have the independence of being able to kind of poke around and, and, and set my own sort of daily news agenda. But at the same time, I've got that support. I've got resources. I've got people that'll say, you know, my God, Katie, you're going to write about that. That's just crackpot. I, I kind of like that. So it, 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 uh, I, I like the checks and the balances too. Yeah, you bring up something that I've thought a lot about, which is just if you have all of those people all of a sudden on the market and there just aren't enough new startups to gobble them all up or give them work, might that usher in some new age of entrepreneurship where they where they form little like bands, you know, <laughs> like well, journalists? And, and that would be that would actually be, I think, pretty great. Like if that's if that were were to be sort of a feasible way, and again, if they were able to crack that code, let's assume for the purposes of of this conversation that somehow magically people figure out a way to consistently make money online that is sustainable and can can sort of power one of those little groups. But that could be great because remember, you're not just going to have reporters out of work. You're going to have editors. You're going to have layout people. You're going to have people with expertise in a lot of different areas. You're going to have columnists. You're going to have, you know, copy editors, although they're probably, you know, they probably all retired by this point because no one can afford to have them anymore. But (laughs) all of those elements of any successful media platform will in theory be kind of on the market and looking for new opportunities at the same time. So that could allow this sort of almost like feudal states to spring up. 
Yeah, I, I I think that that you know what's been blocking that is the persistent existence of the of these big media entities, which. You know, I think it makes it harder to launch those efforts, harder to do business. And I think even just psychologically, you know, there still is some sort of feeling of, okay, the mainstream still exists. The thing to do is to get a job with another news brand. If that disappears, you know, some people will leave, but some people might t- take, a, take a crack at it. Yeah. And I mean, if you actually look at sort of a completely sort of post like mega media outlet world, there would also be a new demand for things like local news, which doesn't tend to be, I mean, we don't see it as a niche because it's so covered by the sort of traditional press. But in the absence of that, again, if we go back to the the version of uh, the dystopian future where Ottawa as a city has no daily paper, there would actually be a requirement for something like that. Now, to be fair, the local, because of the internet, thank you, internet, uh, the local television radio station, CTV, CBC, can obviously, when it comes to online, sort of put some of that in. But for people that do want the sort of the print media or the the pixel, but the print media take on things, there would be an outlet for a lot more local coverage. And that those are the kind of vacuums that could be created if you do have sort of a massive collapse within the larger players, which could open up new opportunities for the smaller ones. Yeah, I, I don't mean to just be like rah rah laissez faire. The free market mm-hmm. will, will ultimately make a better product. I think that you know it, it's an ugly and brutal process, and some people you know will be inspired to do interesting things, and it, it could actually be really cool. But there will be people who get grind out of the whole thing. There will be people whose careers are shut, shut short, and there will be people who just leave. What's interesting to me is you've kind of done. What when 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 young journalists ask me how do you get started I, I say just start just do it don't spend a year asking permission looking for a job in a market like this just start doing the journalism and having gone through ups and downs myself I just just continue to do stuff and make stuff and that's the way you'll 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 find a path mm-hmm. it almost feels like you haven't skipped a beat like it's just you you just show up for work the next day and figure out the money part afterwards. Have you thought at any point about, okay, I can read the tea leaves here. This is this industry is not heading in a good way. Maybe it's time to think about going into politics. Maybe it's a time to think about going into PR, that crossroads that a lot of journalists hit. Was there ever any question about that? Because it just seems like you're you're a machine. So far, I've been really, really lucky. And all of my, well, first of all, up until Post Media, all of my changes in, uh, my, my changes in brand, as you put it, but my, my job changes were all completely voluntary. They were not in any way driven. Like it was, I got offered a more interesting position somewhere else. So I went there. It wasn't until this that I was actually in a situation where I might be out of work. And no, I mean, luckily, again, and this is this is nothing about skill. This is nothing about anything other than, than just pure serendipity. But I was in a position where there were people who reached out and said, hey, you know, if you wanted to, so sorry to hear about what's been happening. If you want to do something for X, let us know and let's talk. So I was, I got those precious, precious emails and I was able to sort of start setting some stuff up. And in that sense, I was also because of the way the um, the layoff notice period works at, at Post Media, at least at Citizen, because it's unionized, I had like three weeks to kind of, figure out what we, what I was going to do next. So that was really valuable as well. Had I sat there staring at an inbox that refused to, you know, every time I refreshed it, it was just the same old sad red emails. I might have, you know, found myself thinking in an entirely different direction, but I didn't have to. So happily, I was able to put that off for now. It's good for newsreaders too. And, and you, you could sort of see like a lot of head scratching of like, wait a second, like if Katie O'Malley lost her job, then, you know, what's going on? I, I think it is that dawning public awareness that, 
something could disappear. And I think everyone's just waiting to be offered a chance to pay for news that they value. So I, I, I think. Well, that- I, I hope that I do hope that's true. And I do hope that, you know, we're that the way the technology is changing, we're going to, I mean, I've always had this theory and it may be crackpot or not. I have no evidence to back it up other than my own personal, the way I use the internet, but I've always thought that it's not even so much the idea of paying money for news. It's the inconvenience of the way all the different platforms make you do it. Like with logins for separate logins for everything and cookies and, Oh God, do I have to log in again? And, uh, it's just so annoying. If it were like my cable bill and I could just pay X dollars a month to some media cartel and just get access to everything. Well, that would be much, uh, much more amenable. Yeah. Well, I, I, we're getting into the weeds of the business side of it, but that's why Patreon I think works so well is that Mm-hmm. We, we overvalue the idea that people want to have exclusive proprietary news that nobody else can get. And the people who support the show, they like the fact that it, that, that everything is open and free. Mm-hmm. It makes it easier for them. They don't have to log in to get it. And I think that right. people, like people, they want to do things for good reasons, not for bad and greedy. And like, I'm going to hoard the information. The fact that this is just free for everybody is actually a, a value add for the people who support it. And I, I could see this is getting into some kind of utopian, but like if like Adrian Humphreys and Sean Craig and some other reporters there like formed, like we are going to be dedicated to like investigations and crime work and we have our own band. And then the opinionators and like, you know, I don't know, Blatchford and Corcoran and people like that got together and said, we're going to have excoriating hot takes. Everybody like has uh, a posse, you know, there are, there mm-hmm. are, you know, thousands of Canadians and they're, they're, some of them are discrete groups and there's, and then there's overlap who I think would pick and choose I, I, I could see that working and I'm surprised that more people aren't trying that. But I want to ask you about this other <laughs> – and again, it's sort of like the Crimea River side of it. But uh, it, mm-hmm. it, it does intrigue me. You think about people at the higher ends of this and, and we have a tradition in Canada – where people sort of have these very soft landings at the highest end of the industry, where be it uh, John Stackhouse getting some job I can't understand at RBC after things didn't go his way at the Globe and Mail, or people going into think tanks or you know academic jobs. There are these, I guess, sinecures and sort of institutional posts that a lot of management level or, or, you know, the the editors at the top of news organizations have kind of looked forward to as sort of like a golden final chapter of their careers. And I can't imagine anybody banking on that anymore. I kind of wonder, like, it's not like my, that's where my heart bleeds, but have you thought about that at all? Or where these people, those people are going to end up? Like what, what's next for Paul Godfrey? Oh, gosh. Uh, I can think of so many answers to that question that I would not want to have published on the Internet. Uh, But no, I mean, in general, I do think that those uh, I I think that those sort of positions are uh, becoming a a charming vestige or maybe not so charming, depending on your perspective, sort of remnant of a of a fast disappearing past. There's almost, you know, no pun intended. There there is like a grandfather clause in the sense that I'm sure if, you know, uh, I'm just going to pick on a colleague at at random here. If, 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 say, Andrew Coyne, let's say the post media collapse happens and Andrew Coyne, for whatever reason, is like, hmm, I would like to get a full time job at a think tank. He would not have to ask twice. He would basically just have to, you know, do a Samantha nose wiggle at the phone. And he would, oh, sorry, it was Tabitha did the nose wiggle, Samantha did the blink. But that's all it would take. And he could be offered the head of any number of think tanks. So I think for for some people, it's still there. But I don't think that they depend on it. And I think that, you know, 10 or 15 years from now, that's probably not. Yeah, sort of a vestige of like a, a chummy old Canada that like, 
like I just feel like smash it, you know. I, I and I like I I want uh, the people who care about this work to like you know. There's just so much skill, and there's like I even see I even see amongst a lot of those people mm-hmm. who leave that they almost like miss it to this point where the prescribed job is to just like quietly collect those paychecks and perform those functions and yet they can't help themselves from opining on Twitter and getting into little scraps and you know trying to like figure out what's happening with the gossip or what the next scoop is like it, it seems like this kind of work gets into people's blood and it's it, it's hard to quit it I think that's absolutely true although to be fair I don't follow like retired doctor Twitter or uh, you know have semi you know <laughs> semi retired accountant Twitter so it's entirely possible that every profession has the same uh, that same you know sort of instinctive reaction to leap into a fight although journalists tend to be mouthier than usual so we are probably unique in that but yeah I do think I think there are some people who make the transition and really never look back and really seem to find their element and I think there are others that yeah you can tell if they had their druthers, they probably would still be the one on, on your end of the interview and not the other one. Katie, thanks so much for talking about this with me and, uh, and good luck. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Going to take a moment to thank our second sponsor, FreshBooks. FreshBooks.com is something that I am very glad I have in my life at this time of year, tax time. Before I used FreshBooks, I spent way too much time scrambling at this time of year to figure out what had just happened in the last 12 months before me. Because I was scrambling late to file my taxes and was not organized through a piece of software like FreshBooks, I think I probably missed out on a lot of benefits. It probably cost me a lot of money. FreshBooks also saves you a lot of time, which saves you a lot of money. Use it throughout the year and you will get paid quicker. You will spend less time doing your books. And when tax time does come, you can use the incredible reporting functions of FreshBooks to spit out information that your accountant can easily deal with, or if you're doing your taxes yourself, it makes things super easy to figure out what you made, what you owe, and what is owed to you. FreshBooks is like an accounting department for freelancers and small businesses that don't have accounting departments, and you can try it out for free and see how incredibly simple it is to use when you go to freshbooks.com slash CanadaLand. Try it out for free for 30 days. You don't need a credit card. If you do decide to become a customer, tell them that CanadaLand sent you, and you will be doing this show a favor. Thank you, FreshBooks. Steve, you're editing at iPolitics, and you've got yourself a veteran journalist, uh, much celebrated. You've got Katie O'Malley writing for iPolitics. You've got Marty Patrickin. You've got Susan Delacourt. It seems like all these big name, really accomplished, well-known political journalists getting pink slipped or otherwise ending their relationships with these major news brands. It's a wonderful outcome for iPolitics. You put together a dream team. No, it it uh, it feels like uh, a bit like the Blues Brothers when you're getting the band back together, driving around, uh, trying to talk people into writing for us. So that's happy for us. It's happy for our readers. It's good news. But it's only possible, I think, because of the terrible, bad, very bad, uh, awful things that are happening in the industry. I I find it very bleak. I find it depressing. You look at at uh, here in Ottawa. You look at the um, excellent journalists with the kind of perspective that you only get after a decade or two in the business. All these people who are pushing or, or being pushed or jumping uh, and going to work for the government or going to work in government relations, it's a sign that we're losing capacity in the business. 
I find it, there are opportunities. There are opportunities with the digital, the new digital startups with us, with Huffington Post, with BuzzFeed, with Vice. But overall, the scale of the effort is smaller than it was. Just nothing is going to, so far, we don't see anything that's going to replace the kind of large bureaus that the old wire services and, and newspapers had. So I think that there, that for people in the business, there are ways to keep at it. And the work is going to continue. You know, there are, there are going to be people in 10 years still doing the same kind of work. But what, what we see as the growth areas, aside from the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, are uh, outlets that are offering a specialty service to business customers. Bus- business to business is doing quite well. You know, when you look at success stories like All Nova Scotia, which is a business-oriented product, so the paywall for people who have credit cards that are paid for by their bosses, that seems to be a model, a sort of survival model, if you will. The mass paywall uh, is working for the New York Times, maybe working for the Washington Post. We don't see anyone in Canada who's making that work on the kind of scale that you'd like to see. But on the other hand, you don't need 100,000 subscribers in order to employ a dozen journalists. Our sense of scale is a little different. You know, we're aiming to build a business model that relies on a smaller group of, of readers. And um, we're going to do the work, you know, we're going to do the, the journalistic work and provide that level of scrutiny and accountability. And we hope, uh, and our indications are that, that uh, the people will pay for that. It'd be a lot better if 100,000 people want to pay for it than 10,000. How, have you ever gotten close to making a change? Uh, I mean, I think that a lot of journalists find themselves in a situation where we're like, you know, pretty harshly rational people. And you look at the difficulty of starting something from scratch. And I think a lot of people look at their own skills and they say, you know what? I have a lot of contacts. I got a lot of, of highly specialized knowledge and ability. Pretty smart. And I can see the, the future ahead. It's very uncertain. It's time to get out. And you mentioned before people getting into politics. I know a lot of people get into PR or marketing. Is that anything you've ever contemplated? I haven't contemplated it very seriously. I've never actually had a conversation with a potential employer and said, you know, I'm thinking of getting out of this. I wouldn't like to because there's something about working in the public interest as opposed to working in the private interest. So I have lots of friends who work in government relations. I mean, they're, uh, they have happy, prosperous lives, and they have jobs that they enjoy. You look, for instance, at the today um, uh, the the government tabled the new marijuana legislation. There's lots of smart, interesting people who work doing government relations, making representation to the government on how that law should look. And you think, wow, those people have nice suits and are going on fancy vacations and they're doing interesting work. But, you know, uh, when you get a good scoop, you know what that's like. Boy, it's hard to beat that, right? It's hard to, to beat the feeling of satisfaction you get from revealing something to the public that the public should know, from taking part in a, in a really interesting national conversation about a matter of public interest. I find that sort of uh, addictive uh, rather than serving the private interest. Yeah, I think uh, the, the kind of sensations and camaraderie in the sense that you're doing something good, it's, it's, it's hard to replicate in other fields. The fact that you kind of like 
made the switch, the transition to a, a newer model sooner than than uh, some people might be forced to later. I did as well, and and perhaps not by choice as much as you did. But it, uh, you know, it seems lucky in retrospect. The real loser, I think, as this plays out, like I, I, I know there's a lot of fear and anxiety amongst a lot of people, and it's really hard on older people who uh, get used to an institutionalized culture and they don't know how to do anything else. Like they're, and they love it so much, and they're looking at like, what am I going to go try to work at BuzzFeed Canada, where the pay scale is so much lower, and they're looking for young people they can get for cheaper. I think that that's daunting for a lot of older people, but they're smart and they'll find something. The loser in that equation is the newsreader, because with those mid-career people, when they leave the field, there's just so much deep knowledge of beats, deep historical knowledge of of, uh, context for what happened in politics, in law enforcement and and education, like just whatever people cover – through those those types of traditional reporting jobs, it's not just what they what they bring when they show up to bang out an article that day. I worry for the overall product if those people, you know, maybe some of them will put bands together and start cool new projects, but I fear that a lot of them, maybe most of them, won't, and they'll just be lost to journalism. Yeah, no, and I find you you look at in the past month here in Ottawa, Michael Detant, who you know has had a a, a great career and breadth of experience and education that he brought to covering politics. Peter O'Neill, the Vancouver Sun guy, both of them gone, gone into the government, Mark Kennedy a while ago. And there's something about those people who have that ability, who've been to many budget lockups, who've seen politicians come and go. You know, the the kid who's just got out of journalism school, who, who brings other skills and a new, you know, maybe better with databases, may understand the new political culture better but we are losing a, a, a generation and it, it is worrying and what's worse in a way is that they're going to the other side to spit us if you compare you've probably seen these numbers the number of people who work in public relations versus journalism in the past 20 years pr has exploded so there's highly paid teams of people out there who are working to manipulate our minds in the pursuit of private interests and the number of people whose job is to be a, the society's bullshit detectors is shrinking. And you can hope that social media, uh, that there are new mechanisms, uh, new skill sets that are developing. But I, I'm a bit worried that uh, we're, we're going to be easier as a society to, to, be, to fall for nonsense and that that there's fewer people out there able to drill down and see the patterns and explain things. And I'm also worried specifically in Canada that we're losing eyeballs to excellent journalism from the United States, that more people are reading the New York Times every day instead of their local paper, which means that they're helping support the excellent journalism that the New York Times is doing. But what about our own stories in Canada? It's it's a bit worrying. Yeah, actually, that's a really scary idea, especially when you bring up, you know, like Michael Dentant working with liberals, James Cudmore, and then, you know, Christian Freeland used to be a journalist. So to think that these people who otherwise might have been mentoring those young kids out of J school and teaching them the ropes, instead, they're going to be in an adversarial, or they are in an adversarial relationship where now they know the ins and outs of the news business, and they're controlling the message from the other side, from the, the side of government. And who are they up against? pretty green bunch of kids uh, who uh, are, I think, 
perhaps not getting the same kind of perspective that they would have. It's it's a bit worrying, but we haven't given up yet. The gallery is shrinking in Ottawa. We're, we're not as many as we used to be. Our reporter Beatrice Britneff dug up the stats and it was, I think we're down to like 1994 levels. But, you know, we're still out there slugging it out and they, they haven't uh, completely buffaloed us. I think from the other side, if you ask them, uh, I think they would say that we're still doing a fairly vigorous job, that they're not able to completely uh, snow us under. But it's hard to know because uh, you never know what you don't <laughs> they know. they could be spinning right? us. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Stephen, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. My pleasure. Thank you. That's your Canada Land Show. I hope you enjoyed it. You can email me anytime. I will read what you send me and respond when I can. I'm at jesse at canadalandshow.com. We're on Twitter at Canada Land. Our website is canadalandshow.com. If you go to canadalandshow.com slash book tour, you will find links to buy tickets to the Canada Land Guide to Canada International Worldwide Tour of Canada. I will be in Toronto, Vancouver, Victoria, Calgary, Saskatoon, Edmonton, Winnipeg, Montreal, Hamilton, London, and Kingston in May. Check it out at canadalandshow.com slash booktour. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. The producer of this show is Russell Gregg. This show can be heard on campus and community radio stations across this country. If you like what we do, please support us. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.